0: Welcome to Matthew's World of Wine and Drink, an educational podcast dedicated to teaching you all about the world of wine, the different grape varieties, the different regions, and the history and culture of wine. So I'm here with Eric Lyman again, winemaker at Judd's Hill in Napa Valley, and following on from our two previous episodes where we've talked about winemaking and the fermentation process, today we're going to be talking about additions and manipulations and corrections, what a winemaker can do to make the wine commercially viable and in the style that he or she wants it to be. So there's lots of things that can happen in the winery. Some of them completely normal, others a little more questionable. And I just want to share an anecdote with you before Eric starts talking from his position of expertise. I was once on a trade trip when I uh, entered the wine industry and I was quite new to the wine industry. I didn't really know that much. I didn't know all the secrets. And one of the guys on the trade trip told me that he'd done a harvest in Australia for one of the really big wineries. And they had a quota of how much red wine they had to make and how much white wine they had to make, and that quota was purely commercial it wasn't based on the harvest; it was what they had to sell the next year. So in that year, they'd made more red wine than they needed and less white wine than the quota demanded. So his job was to climb up a hundred thousand litre tank with some powder, got to the top, dropped the powder into the red wine, and by the time he'd got to the bo- climbed down to the bottom of the tank, the red wine had turned into white wine. <laughs> And so that's one of the secrets that can be done, which Eric is going to tell us all about some of the tricks of the trade. And when people say um, cheap wine gives them more of a headache than expensive wine, that's probably one of the reasons, some of the stuff that's added. Can not be particularly good for the body. What also people talk about is that they are allergic to sulfites, and it's sulfites that give them a hangover, which is highly unlikely, it's more likely to be alcohol, or some of the chemicals and additions that go into wine. Sulfur is what people really um, talk about because it's on the label. There's only two ingredients listed in wine, alcohol and sulfur, so people get quite hung up about sulfur. So let's start with sulfur. So why um, add sulfur during the winemaking process?
1: Um, It's, uh, I mean, to put it just real easy, it's a preservative and it helps preserve uh, freshness. I'm I'm a firm believer in its use. I find, you know, low sulfur wines, you know, they need a little more sulfur. (laughs) (laughs) Um, It's just a great tool um, and you're right, it's not what... um, Probably gets people... I mean, I'm sure there are people that are sensitive to it, but, uh, you know, it's more probably alcohol or sugar that gets people hangovers Mm -hmm. uh, um, in the end. Um, I've had some good low-sulfur wines. They have definitely... Some people nailed uh, that that ability and and preserved the wine accordingly so uh, it remained fresh and stuff. And one of the big eye-opening ones for me was a... um, Low sulfite wine from Australia. They had put it in screw cap with a tin liner, and uh, it was as advertised, low sulfite. Lots of times you don't see that, and 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 it, with, with the wine industry also, it's it's what what is considered low sulfite is debatable by a bunch of different people. So I think anything lower than fifty ppm total is lower. You know, it can go up to. I mean, white white has a higher level that you could use as far as parts per million and um people
0: use it <laughs> a lot. So you say it's preservative. What's it preserving the white from?
1: Uh, oxidation, uh microorganisms, all kinds of little bugs. It's a I mean it is a it's a very strong chemical and it and it really works at 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 preserving things and not letting uh things get out of hand in the bottle. And it's
0: been in use for a very long time. Yes, the addition of sulfur is not a new thing. Um, so when do you add sulfur during the winemaking?
1: Um, sometimes we add it up front at the crusher. You know, we we do a lot of clean winemaking here. We don't necessarily want the things that come in on some of the lots to uh, come into the winery. So we'll hit uh, with different parts per million at the crusher to knock... Uh, stuff down we do it during the course of aging a little bit some people add big amounts and let it let it dissipate other people go small amounts once a month we're kind of in between i think in how we do it and then we add some depending on what we're going into if it's a keg uh, we hit it pretty hard there's a standard number for free so2 and that we found really works with gags and what is that that's 29 ppm almost every consulting winemaker i've ever made wine for in the end uh, wants to sleep well at night and they not only sterile filter but they, they use a good amount of so2 um, and go ahead and get it up around 29 free also There's molecular level of SO2 that a lot of people say, oh, if your pH is, you know, hit the molecular. But I've seen that a lot of people could care less about hitting the molecular and just have a desired number. And when four or five consulting winemakers all tell me, you know, please make sure it's got 29 parts per million of free at modeling, that's There's something to it.
0: So, what's the difference between free sulfur and total sulfur? Oh, technical.
1: <laughs> free goes away. So, free is like the active total. Let's say over the course of a year, you add a total amount of 100 ppm. At one point, your free was probably 25 to 29, but it, that goes down. And there's a technical thing it binds. Uh, you know, the scientific winemakers will tell you exactly what it does. <laughs> so total is like kind of almost always there. It's, it's a running total and free goes up and goes down. And I think in the end they all go down after many years in the bottle.
0: Right. And how exactly do you add sulfur?
1: We add a K-metabisulfite. Is the fine, it's a fine powder. And we go ahead and um, at the crusher, we dissolve it in just a little bit of water usually, and put it at the crusher, in the, in the fermentation, I mean, in the, um, in the barrels, and over aging, we have these tabs that are 20 ppm each, really wonderful product, and we put those, we add with 20 ppm, and then at the, uh, just before bottling, we like to have our our build up SO2 level, not so we're hitting it with like 40 ppm prior to bottling, we like to hit it with maybe five,
0: and then we'll go back to the to the power. So that's talking about sulfurs. So that's really preserving the wine. So what about um, changing the wine and kind of helping the wine? So in the previous episode, we talked about yeast and um, using cultured yeast to help the fermentation going. What about enzymes? Do you how do you work with enzymes?
1: Uh, the the enological supply companies are huge. They're they've become a. Just, uh, I don't know what the number is, million and million of dollars a year, companies that have everything. They put a lot of science and a lot of money behind coming up with the next big thing to help. Um, so, extracting tannins, extracting, uh, working with enzymes, there's, there's uh, peptides and uh, all kinds of mouthfeel things, all these stuff in a jar, you know, basically you can use. And it's amazing, too. You look at the... At the catalogs and when I first started in this industry that's all I wanted to do was was learn how to make you know wine better through modern wine making stuff I realized after a while that we live in a just a crate area and we really do not need to do these things to to fruit make them something they're not because all the good stuff is already there that being said I also work with some fruit that comes in um, less than NAPA standards uh, in farming and condition. And those oftentimes, you know, I have a lot of pressure on a client um, and I communicate to them and say, hey, I can do things to, to get you, you know, your, to help your wine and they give me full, I mean, they're gonna be, if they do one barrel, they're gonna have 24 cases. Y- you never wanna have 24 lousy cases of wine. <laughs> mm-hmm. So, whoa, we'll go ahead and use all the tricks. So I can turn a, it, my, the the funny thing about the the enzymes and tannins is, my first year me alone, working with some pinot grapes I got, I decided I wanted more color, more structure, so I used three different things, and the first time I poured it for somebody, they said, "Ooh, I love syrah," <laughs> it's because I extracted so much color. But so I, I changed what it was. It, it was no longer, uh, sure it was Pinot Noir, but it uh, was a Frankenstein kind of wine. And you know, it, it, it goes to show what I'm trying to get at is those things really, really do work. If you want to chase color and put extra color into a thing, you can do it by uh, cat management, by blending or by using science.
0: Yes, we're going to talk about color and tannin management in a second. But just going back to enzymes, what exactly are enzymes and what do they do? Uh,
1: what they, I, I, I mean, I, w- w- what they do is they break down the grape at a cellular level and extract the stuff you want. So if it's color, or or if you want a fruitier want, uh, there's uh, there's there's enzymes that promote fruit. If you want more structured, deeper color, there's enzymes that prom- promote that.
0: Um, one other thing that's on the label in a bottle of wine is alcohol. And so That's obviously a very important ingredient in wine. Wine is nothing without alcohol. Um, in parts of Europe, chaptalization is going to be used because it might be too cool, so adding sugar to the grape must to get higher alcohol, that's not going to be a problem here in California. No. We should have enough alcohol. The problem might be that it's too much. Too much. So how would you remove alcohol, or would would you even do that?
1: Well, um, you know, uh, a 15% alcohol in a big Bordeaux that has a lot of new oak, has so many things going on, it never comes off as hot. It's not a... My my thing with alcohol is I never want it to be a descriptor. I, I don't want it to be part of the the nose, I don't want to smell heat. Alcohol, it's it's, 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 a, it's a fact that alcohol really is a mouthfeel thing. It really fills out your in, in your palate. Like Pinot though, if you have even a 14.1% alcohol, it could be, you could really pick it out. So I really don't like that. Um, I also don't like adding water so much. Mm-hmm. Uh, sometimes I have to. Because people bring in, uh, you know, 27 brick grapes, they want a 14 or lower percent alcohol. We don't have machines to dialk, so I have to do it by adding some water. Anything over a 10 percent water add, you start to dilute really. So uh, that that again goes back to our one of our other talks about us really making sure people realize in the vineyard. What what's coming in because we don't have all the all the fun machines and stuff that de-alk. Um and it's a common practice. It's mm-hmm. it is that people people are able to add water to high brick wine, then go back and concentrate it. They're able to get sixteen percent alcohol wine and then sweet spot it down to 14.2, wherever it tastes great. That's one of the easier manipulations is dealking. Mm-hmm. Uh, again, you could do it old school by blending in less alcoholic wine, but that takes a lot of wine to do. So a lot of a lot of people dealk. Uh, another thing a lot of people do is there is certain leeway on, on labels, what the percentage alcohol reported is. And whenever we do tastings and stuff, we always run these labs. And it's amazing how people fudge those numbers a bit. It's almost to where if you see a wine that's listed at 15, chances are it's like way high. And then you see, you know, people fudge the numbers opposite. So their rosé is really 14.2, but... Nobody wants to buy a 14.2 rosé, so they fudge it a little bit and say, oh, it's
0: 13.2. And then the other issue in California is that the acidity might be too low. So can you talk about acidification? Uh, when I came into the
1: industry, I was uh, mentored by um, a, a longtime winemaker who knew how to uh, and, and used it a lot was to acidulate a water back because... It's safe winemaking. You, you get the alcohols lower, you get the acid higher. It sits in barrel for longer without much problems. Every year, there's bags and trucks full of tartaric acid um, that comes into the vineyard, I mean, into the wineries all around, and um, especially because the trend has been so much to, to pick riper. The acid goes down, so you gotta you want to add it back to give it some acid. Um, and tartaric is the tartaric acid is the easy up front. You do it during uh, fermentation. You can you can add it uh, and and just really dial in your acid profile. Uh, I'm getting to the point where I can taste taste added tartaric now i never used to think people could but then people said no no you can and we did a Mm -hmm. a few trials where oh you know there is a i mean it's you know they'll tell you oh it's natural tartaric well that's fine but (laughs) it's just not the same Mm -hmm. it's it's coming in from the vineyard so um yeah tartaric citric acid uh we add some whites a combination of tartaric and citric yeah that's it and then people have the fun thing too where they where they take out acid prior to bottling because mm-hmm. they they got through two years of, of aging at a really high acid and low pH because that's safe winemaking. The VA stays low and then all of a sudden they want mouthfeel and less acidity, you could you change that too. Yeah, so manipulating lines in everything you've said is very common practice. Mm-hmm. Um, and and my, you know, my, my heart goes out to the guys that stick to the guns where they don't do it because oftentimes could... A little manipulation
0: uh, improve their wine, yeah, for mm-hmm. sure. Um, and make their life easier. Yeah, make their life easier. So you touched on this before, uh, color, color, and tannin management. So how how about how do you go about altering the color or altering the tannins of a wine? Um, punch
1: downs. There's a there's a there's a there's a real sweet window in the first you know phase of uh, of alcoholic fermentation, the primary fermentation, where you can really get some good extraction going. It's a perfect combination of alcohol uh, just, uh, and, and timing. So sometimes we'll do extra pump overs. We'll, we'll go three pump overs and three punch downs a day. We at Jud's Hill and myself as a winemaker now, I don't uh, chase color as much as I used to. A- anytime you extract something, you extract something else that may not be great. So a I, I don't over extract to get color anymore okay so Zinfandel for example you know I used to really want to make our Zinfandels much darker in color but you know what Zinfandel is a lighter as a thinner skin crepe and manipulating it to extract more color is again you're you're taking out other things so now um, I don't chase color as much, and, and I, I'm okay with it. I've so uh, yeah. I just don't I, I don't chase color anymore. However, if I wanted to, um, there's all kinds of things with with tannin. When you add the tannin enzymes, when you add the enzymes to extract color, there, there's a product called VR Color. It's it is what it says. It's it's a way to help enhance color, and then there's after. Market stuff, I call them uh, stuff out of a jar or a jug that you can add just prior to uh, uh, bottling. Actually, like we've all heard, mega purple and mega red. Well, that's how you can add color. Mm-hmm. And lots of times, it's I never used to think again. Uh, maybe my palette is all, finally becoming a little more professional, but I think I can figure out which wines use it because it's got a it's got this look to it in the glass it's got just a, it, it's concentrated and um, it is widely used and again cheap i deal with a lot of um uh, for some clients some bulk lines out there and to fix bulk lines lots of times hey yeah people use mega red mega purple Um, all kinds of little tricks and and residual sugar and so when you're getting that you know 15.5 zinfandel for $3.50 and you get a hangover it's probably sugar chemicals and uh, not sulfites
0: Yeah, purple is a product uh, mainly made from ruby red. That's the grape used. A lot of it planted in California. And I had the good fortune to try a ruby red recently. And it is the purplest wine I've ever seen. It actually stained the glass. It's so much color. So you can imagine adding a product based on that uh, grape. We really would um, add the color. And people do like that wine is deeply colored. It's attractive and satisfying. And you only use like 1%
1: or 2%. Otherwise, it's overwhelming. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we've done trials here because I was er, early on here at Jets Hill, I was really interested in, you know, uh, fixes from a jar, basically. And, and one of them, I got the sample of Mega Purple and it was bizarre. <laughs> <laughs> and one
0: or 2%, really, any more than one or 2%, and you're in trouble. Yeah. So that's talking about cooler. What about tannins? How do you alter the tannins in a wine.
1: You um, again go to one of these fancy books and you look up what kind of tannin you want. Uh, people add oak chips up front. Um, again you can uh, up your uh, cat management game, do a lot more punch overs and pump downs, uh, pump overs and punch downs to extract more um, and uh, I have a lot of clients who that's, they, they chase tannin and they really want, uh, just undrinkable tannin, uh, for the first, you know, many years of the bottle life. And, um, so we go out of our way to extract it naturally. And then I also have some clients that, you know, wish their wine from an area outside of Napa, uh, had more tannin and more structure, and um, I can help them with that also using the same products. Uh, we don't do a lot of oak chips uh, during fermentation, but that's a practice and that oak adds that kind of tannin. Uh, I prefer to do it the old-fashioned way just heavy heavy rotation with the cap and uh, extract it. Mm-hmm. And like I said we're, we're, we're lucky in Napa where these grapes have serious tannin structure already so.
0: Yeah, so that's um, all during the winemaking. So You're at the end of the process and you want to bottle. Talk about fining and filtering. How do you do that? Sure. Um, lots
1: of things. I, I always say to a, a new client that winemaking into, to get your grapes into a glass is like, kind of like baseball. You know, you hope during harvest, you get on to first base. Well, in Northern California, the West Coast, we pretty much... Get on first base, no matter what. Uh, I mean, it's we in Apple. We don't have bad harvests. So uh. <laughs> anyway, so then you're going to make a couple moves during the course of the wine, the wine's life, to get home again, which is into bottle, into a glass. Those stages, you know, there's all kinds of little things. Hey, when do we get it on oak? Do we use inserts? Again, we're rounding second base. And then in the end, um, there's coming home and there's a lot of things we can do. Fining is done upfront lots of times. It's done in the middle and near the end. When you're fining, you're removing something. How I feel about fining is no matter what, if you're taking out something undesirable, you're taking something good with it. Uh, we do many, many fining trials it's always great when you have the perfect vineyard, and the perfect pick, and the perfect aging, and hey, unfined, unfiltered. I mean, that that's great, but it doesn't always happen. And um, fining is just another section of a huge catalog of stuff. There's, um, old school animal products that have been used over the years. There's new school synthetic stuff. There's all kinds of stuff for finding all kinds of problems. You can find out color. You can find out proteins. You can find out bitterness. Just all kinds of things you can do. Uh, We choose uh, at Judd's Hill, uh, especially for Judd's Hill brand and quite a few others, we try to be minimally Intervention, which means, hey, you know, can we get by without fining? It? Our most common fining thing we do is bentonite. night. Uh, we bent night up front some whites um, and our rosés. We want to get uh, the we want to get them heat stable so we can get them cold stable easily, and uh, that's part of it. It also helps it settle. There's stuff, isinglass, casein, which are animal products we've never used here so I, I proudly tell everybody we're a vegan winery and we always will be while I'm here because there's just so many other products you don't have to use fish bladders or whatever. Yeah, so that's that's fining. You fine out, fine out faults. Um, you can add stuff to, to get a better mouth feel. Um, so uh, that gets you to to fine-tuning prior to modeling if the client comes in and says wow I just wish it had more you know I always love doing stuff through blending blending is the natural way to even even though I just read this article where they were saying oh low manipulation low intervention can't be a blend because you're blending in which is inter- and I'm like come on I mean okay I'll, I'll yeah. anyways so uh, anyways so Our approach is if there's a, if there's a flaw, let's see if we can blend it to make it okay. Uh, blending, you know, doesn't always have to make a wine better. It makes it different. Um, but sometimes you need it to be better and, and you'll, you'll, uh, each winemaker will have his own kind of trick on what he does to, to blend in the blending prior to bottling. Yeah. So fining is a, is a legit, legit process, uh. And there's a lot of things to find out. Uh, clarity is a big one, right? but filtration helps that. Mm-hmm. And uh, we go to filtration. <clears throat> That's another one. Um, you know, people are all over the place with filtration. I, I always go back to me working with some pretty high-profile um, um, consulting winemakers, and they all sterile filter their... Random clients' wines. Uh, they want to sleep good. <laughs> they don't. Uh, they don't want to, you know, be called, you know, about, you know, five thousand cases that that all of a sudden are popping the corks. So there's a lot of sterile filtration. I personally, I'm um, on the fence about it. It's it's like, I, I I've sat in maybe three filter trials, and. I kid you not, all three I've picked, this is blind, I've always picked the sterile filter wine. And the hippie in me wanted to always <laughs> like the unfiltered. But, you know, if, if uh, my associate winemaker has a very good point, if, if, if you have something, let's just take a red wine that's been in barrel for 24 months, it's gone through a couple different changing of the seasons, and nothing bad has really happened, that you're pretty okay without filtering. And uh, I agree with her, totally. And, but then I flip it and say, well, this is a thousand cases of Napa Valley Cabernet, and I don't feel like messing around. Uh, Cause you know, stuff happens and, and who knows, and I don't want to mess around with that. So uh, for Gents Hill, we kind of do them both. Uh, I filter some, uh, sterile filter some. Uh, I don't filter others. It's kind of like a gut feeling sometimes. Uh, with them and of course it comes back to the labs and and the and the chemistry of the wine Uh, We sterile filter all of our whites and rosés Because they have malic in there and you know, that's a that's a danger danger right there Um, If there's any sugar at all We sterile filter and the filtering process is you know bottle shocks a real thing if you sterile filter a big complex red wine it's gonna take months for it to come back, um, and no doubt. Pinot Noir's, in my experience, is another one that, man, if you sterile filter, you're gonna have all kinds of variants for the first year or so in bottle. So there's that to consider too. Like, are these people going straight to market? Do they need it now? Do they need it now? Um, if they can sit on it for a year, which is great for, for in my, my opinion, uh, then yeah, sterile filter
0: and sleep well at night. One last question: Do you think additions and manipulations should be on the label of wine? Yes, I think. I I,
1: I I think in the end, things should be on the label. That I I don't know when that'll ever happen because the lobby for the people that add so much is so huge that it'll probably be, I, I don't know if we'll see it in my lifetime, I like the approach of like Ridge and these guys that are just saying, I'm going to go ahead and put it out here. And they put all kinds of things. I I, I saw a bottle, I was like, well, they're, they're only going to say it if they didn't do something. Well, I have seen other things on their labels. So um, I really applaud transparency in, in these guys. The only thing that I'm always wary of is because this wine industry isn't heavily regulated like... The pharmaceutical industry, there's no accountability for truth in labeling. I mean, there's, I I told you about the alcohol can be different. Nobody says they added residual sugar, but yet the RS is, you know, 20 grams per liter. Um, So I, I just wish there was more accountability when it comes to what you can say on your label. Natural wine, what's natural wine? It's whatever the guy says it is. Basically there's nobody so the same thing with ingredients. It's yeah. um very expensive to to catch somebody in a lie on on that. And again, the the lobby is so big that I doubt I'll see it in my winemaking my career.
0: Yeah, I agree. It is very strange that such a heavily regulated industry such as wine and alcohol in general, where there's so many laws and so much bureaucracy, this basic thing is saying what is in the in the drink just isn't on the label there's no regulations about it compared to soft drinks yeah it's amazing yeah Yeah. so thank you for Eric Um, hope everyone's found that very educational and that's it for this episode